Welcome again to the Professional Practice Podcast with me, Austin Williams, Senior Lecturer at Kingston School of Art in London. Today, we're joined by Craig Allison, Senior Planning Enforcement Officer at Hambleton District Council in Yorkshire, and currently Chair of the National Association of Planning Enforcement and the North of England Representative for NAEP. Effectively, planners provide permission to develop, liaison to correct errors, uh, but enforcement is the ultimate backstop if things don't go to plans. In other words, this podcast will explore how designers and developers and architects can best keep on the right side of people like Craig. So thanks very much indeed, Craig. Thanks for giving us your time. It's difficult to see a planning officer these days, so it's always a delight. It is. Uh, uh, thank you very much. So look, the opening question, as usual, is uh, about you, where you're from, what you studied, how did you get to where you are? I sort of came about planning, I wouldn't say by accident. It was more, I was doing my A-levels, really interested in geography, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do with a geography career, effectively. And one of my teachers, who was a local ward counsellor, uh, said to me, oh, have you thought about doing planning? And I was like, oh, okay, I'll have a look and looked into the RTPI and all that sort of stuff. And I found it quite interesting. So I thought, oh, I'll do a degree in it. So I went to the University of Sheffield, did my uh, undergraduate degree and my master's degree at Sheffield graduated in 2011 but then as soon as I graduated that was the height of the recession there was no jobs and it took me a while before it took me about a year before I actually got a job in planning and literally was just applying for jobs all over the country and I just happened to apply for an enforcement job didn't really know what it was because I didn't really mention about it much at university and then went into a job at South Oxfordshire District Council and absolutely loved it and was there for about a year, left there and went to Hinkley and Bosworth Borough Council just outside of Leicester. I was there for about five years and became part of NAEP when I was there and I was like the Midlands rep. And then I moved up to Hambleton because I'm originally from York. So I moved back up to sort of where I was from um, and been here for around about three years now and then took over the chair of NAEP this year from a colleague who was the chair down in London. So he stopped it and I took over it from him. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so, that's... that's so this, this is like you're implying you fell into it. Effectively, yeah. I was. I sort of always mention to people about university and that they don't actually mention enforcement at all. There's always the policy side of things or the design of things, which is what I did a lot at uni, but nothing was ever mentioned about enforcement. And yeah. now I see enforcement is quite an important part of planning. Well, not only that, not only that, I read that you say, I believe planning enforcement is one of the most important parts oh, yeah. of planning. So what's that, what's that about? My, it's my uh, go-to slogan. It's, it's effectively, my, I always think like you have a development, somebody, you approve a development and they implement it. But we're here to make sure that that is implemented as per the approved plans or et cetera. And if we didn't have us as enforcement officers, people could just go ahead and do anything they wanted. So I think us as enforcement officers, we're one of the most important people because we make sure things are built to how they should be and to the standards that they should be. So that's why I always say we're the most important arm. What's the point of planning if you don't have us? So the policeman of planning. Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, maybe you've maybe you've half answered it. So because in enforcement procedures in general say that you know you need to respond to local policies and local conditions. But then there's this kind of planning enforcement handbook for England, which I know you had a part in writing, which yeah. seems to be like a national strategy. So is there a are there certain things which are nationally mandated, or is it all you know decided on the local conditions? Um, well, in terms of taking enforcement, it is down to local policies. So every council will have a local plan or a plan of what they think is an acceptable form of development. 
in their area. So in taking enforcement action, you would say that if that's something contrary to the local plans policies, then effectively how we work out whether we want to take enforcement action is we've got to consider that if an app planning application was submitted to the council or to the local authority, would it get planning permission or not? If we don't think it would get planning permission, that's when we should serve an enforcement notice to cease the use or alter the development, etc. The planning enforcement handbook for England is effectively a list of all the types of notices that people could serve, which is a national thing. So obviously you've got your enforcement notices, stop notices, etc. And that's a procedure to help people to understand how to do that. And that's more of a national thing. The type of notices which are nationally taking enforcement action is more of a local decision. Got it. I mean, we'll talk about some of those notices uh, a little mm. bit later on, hopefully. But in, in this kind of planning umbrella, this kind of wonderful world in which you inhabit, you have that overall planning strategy, the, the MPPF and all the rest of it, the, and then the local plans, et cetera. Then you have that management of the proposals, the planning approvals and decisions, et cetera. And then there's the enforcement stuff. And the enforcement, as you've already mentioned, comes into force if a project is in breach. That's the mm-hmm. phrase that's used. Yeah? So yeah. would you would you be able to just explain what's meant? I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's many things, but in general, what's meant by a breach? It's quite a broad statement in terms of how we say things. It's sort of like, So say, for example, we have a development that, for argument's sake, the extension of a house and it was meant to be, it was approved for a five metres from the main house. But in actual fact, when we've gone out on site, it is six metres. Therefore, it's contrary to the approved plans that that's a breach. That's a very straightforward one. Other ones could be um, where they've, they've not submitted a plan application at all and we've gone out and there's a material change of use. So we know what the previous use of the building was, was, for example, a restaurant. And now it's changed to a hot food takeaway without planning permission. That's a breach and we can serve a notice on that. So we get a, councils get a variety of issues, either something that's contrary to approved development or something that nobody's actually applied full stop. And we have to look at whether that is a breach of planning law and legislation. That, that's useful. I mean, I think the other aspect is that you say that, it, not you say, but it's said that enforcement is discretionary uh, mm-hmm. and will be applied when it's expedient to do so. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so that sounds very vague. I mean, mm. you, you're dealing in specifics, but then there's these kind of vague clauses. So what, what what's what's the meant by those two provisos in practical terms, discretionary and expedient? So expedient is effectively, it sort of goes back to what I previously said in terms of if we believe planning permission would be granted for the development, then it is not expedient for the council or the local authority to take action. In terms of discretion, is it proportionate as well for us to take action? And you might look at something and go, yes, it is technically a breach, but what is the harm that's being caused by it? So go back to that extension argument. So they've extended it by a metre, but they might not have any neighbours next door. And you think, well, there's no harm called, therefore there's no need for us to take action against it. Or on the same side, there could be extended by six metres and there is neighbours either side of the development and causes overlooking impact the development becomes overbearing, therefore, then you would take action. So it's discretionary in terms of case by case. You can't say you will always do it for that small extension. It all depends on the surroundings and the character of the area, effectively. All right. But but is it discretionary by case by case officer? I mean, would one person have a 
you know, if somebody gets mm, out of yeah, bed yeah. the wrong side and gets a bit harsh, and another person is just a lovely guy, you know, yourself, for example, mm. uh, would you be more, you know, amenable to things? I suppose that's one of the things with planning. It's very subjective. One planning officer might take a view not to take action. Another officer might think completely the opposite. It is very discretionary in terms of that point of view. But generally, from my practices, if there's a different scope of opinion on a particular thing, then generally what happens is we discuss it with all the officers in in the department and sort of see what the general consensus is. Because like you say, somebody might have just got out of the the bed the wrong side of the morning and thought, right, I just want to take action against everybody. But in practical terms, that's not really reasonable and appropriate. That's why as a team, it's best for us to speak to each other and speak to DM and policy and all that sort of stuff to get their views on it. Um, and then we can make a general consensus because we're representing a local council, not just ourselves. It's the council's view. Precisely. So do you like in planning um, approval terms, there's certain things which are decided by the officer and some things which have to go to council. Do you, do you have a similar process? Not The normal practice for us is that we, if there's a breach and we want to take action, there'd be a report written, be sent off to my line manager who would then see if she agrees with me. She does. I get signed off. Then it goes to our legal team who would then look at it to see whether it's reasonable to serve a notice legality and then subsequently it would get served or alternatively it could be say for example a plan application uh, a retrospective plan application it is recommended for i don't know for approval but it goes to planning committee committee members overturn it and want it to be refused then that's obviously out of my hands i've got to i might disagree with that decision to but I've got to follow through with enforcement action because local ward members have refused it. So it depends on the circumstances of it, really. Uh, funny old game. So in terms of these kind of notices, you've mentioned a few of them already. There's, I mean, there's, there's too many to, to really go through. I've, I've drawn out planning con- contravention notice and a stop notice, but, you know, there's also mm. temp- temporary stop notices and et cetera. Just, yeah. just pick on a couple and explain a few to us if you can. Yes. So planning contravention notice is a, a very useful tool for us as enforcement officers it's used at a very early stage of an investigation where effectively it's a legal notice where an owner has to respond within 21 days of the notice being sent to them and we can ask them any question related to the breach of planning control so if we believe it's a change of use of a, of a land for something uh, we could say well when did this change how did it change what developments did you put in anything that's relevant to the breach we couldn't ask them what they had for the tea last night because but we can ask them anything relating to the breach and that's a very useful tool and we can use that as evidence to take action if necessary a stop notice is i would say councils are less less likely to use them mainly due to the fact that they're subject to costs um, and there's a huge risk to local authorities serving them they're a very useful tool when used correctly but they are very they're challenged a lot um, generally, a stop notice would be served at the same time as an enforcement notice, or they have to be, and effectively it stops all work on the site immediately. And that's why they're subject to costs, because a developer could say, well, you've costed me so much money by stopping work when I could have got it finished, developed, etc. So it's less likely for local authorities to serve stop notices. We have, but, yeah. But if you do issue a stop notice and, and the contractor refuses to comply with it, what's what's the crack then? When I first ever started enforcement, my first ever notice was a stop notice, which is very rare, but it happened to me. So we had a, it was a stable block that was getting built in the open, in an area of outstanding natural beauty. 
we served a stop notice and enforcement notice to stop the works getting built. They obliged, they did stop. They then appealed against the enforcement notice. So that appeal is sent to the planning inspectorate who is appointed by the Secretary of State. So they're completely independent to the council and to the to the owner. And then following that appeal, obviously the owner could apply for costs, which the inspector can determine whether that's feasible. Determined the appeal. In this instance, the inspector agreed with the council. And then subsequently, they then they had to comply fully with the enforcement notice. So the enforcement notice stipulated that the stable block had to be knocked down and the land restored back to its original condition um, prior to the works occurring. So normally what would happen, the normal process that councils go through is, right, they go, you've got a period of compliance, for argument, three months. It's not complied with the council, then think, right, what we need to do next is potentially prosecute them for non-compliance with the enforcement notice, which goes to the magistrate's court. And then that's up to the magistrates to decide a particular fine, which can be anything. Sometimes I've had fines that are maybe a couple of hundred pounds, but you can get them up to 20, 30, 50,000 pounds. It all depends on who you get put in front of. And then potentially they could get fined. There, The owner might say, well, I'm going to comply with the enforcement notice, but can I have another couple of months? Generally, you would agree with that. That's fine. If it's not complied with, you could potentially prosecute them again. Or the other option is that the council can take direct action. So we, as a local authority, we could pay for a contractor to go on site and undertake the works. Obviously, that is at a cost to the taxpayer effectively taking those works. The council can only recover its money. So what we do is we put a charge on the land. So if that land is ever sold in the future, we would be able to, the council would be able to recover its costs. But if it's a random field in the middle of nowhere, the chances of a council recovering it is hugely unlikely, but that's the only way we can recover it. Or alternatively, if we didn't want to go down that route, there's other measures in terms of injunction to basically force them to do it. And obviously if they breach an injunction, that's a contempt of court and they could potentially face a prison sentence effectively. And there has been instances in cases where People have gone to prison for breaches of planning control, which I always find very bizarre in terms of somebody could go to a prison and be in jail with various other people that have done horrible crimes, et cetera. And I can always imagine them in the canteen. Oh, what are you in here for? Oh, I didn't knock down my building. And I just find it very odd, but it, it, it does happen. I think there was one recently, you might have seen it. It was in uh, the Forest of Dean, I think it was, where somebody had built a massive outbuilding in their back garden. Um, and had like a bowling alley, cinema room. It was like a massive, it was called Britain's largest man cave. And he never knocked it down. And he actually went to jail because he didn't comply with his enforcement notice. But it's, when you see the pictures of it, you think, how did he get away with it? But he's been told to knock it down. It's still there today, but he's in jail. So it's always good to have these little chirpy stories, isn't it? Oh, about, yeah. About is. enforcement. But in terms of, you know, you're, if you're a client, oh, sorry, you know, developer or whatever client, uh, and you get these enforcement notices, and the remedial action that you have to take will be, you know, will bankrupt you or is you don't have the resources to do it. On a, on a simpler example, if you have a house which is just built slightly higher than the planning permission was given and you were told to reduce the roof, which would involve a lot of structural work, let's imagine you don't have the money to do it. What's the result of that? If you pursue it, you know, if you push. push yeah, it. obviously we would have to take that into consideration. Um obviously there's the human rights aspect and the equality and making sure we don't a council doesn't want to make somebody bankrupt at the end of the day but if it's causing if the development's causing such serious harm to the surrounding area then it has to follow it through 
whether somebody's done it wrong or not it's that's it's it's sort of tough people sort of give us the whole sympathy card a little bit and as enforcement officers we're sort of born just to sort of be a bit tough on the outside and say no sorry it's just got to go that's the way it is um there you are and there i was calling you a nice guy earlier on yeah we have to be horrible i'm afraid yeah so do you do you investigate every allegation then of of yeah so it'd be phone calls emails still get letters that get sent in every person who makes an allegation we have to investigate we have a duty to investigate everything the only time we won't investigate something is if somebody makes a complaint and don't puts their name and name and address down so it's an anonymous complaint we won't investigate those because they could be fictitious but any complaint that comes in we'll deal with everything whether it's a breach or it's not a breach all right and then the section 330 notice or 330 notice however you say it mm. uh, is, that's that's about gaining access to information about the land is that right do you can yeah yeah so that's, investigation? yeah requisition of information so we can use if we're struggling to find out who the owner of the land is if land registry is not up to date because land registry come is a bit behind at the moment in terms of updating it takes a while for it to update so that's a quicker process for us to get that there's also we can use Section 16 of the Miscellaneous Government Act as well. We can use that to gather the information as well. And that's a bit, you can put that as 14 days rather than 3.30s, 21 days. So you can do a bit quicker if you really need the information that way. All right. And I even read, I think, something you wrote about uh, the use of drones, I mean, surveillance and you know, all mm. this kind of... So presumably you're going through a huge investigative, almost, it is almost like police-like, isn't it? You're going through an investigative yeah, it is, process. Yeah. So yeah. what's, what, what, what role does technology offer in, in these circumstances? Drones is becoming more and more popular for a lot of councils. Um, it's effectively all we have to do now to be able to use a drone is as long as we are open and honest with the person who we're investigating to say we will be using this, then we're not in breach of any sort of legislation. As long as we've got a policy and all that sort of stuff, then we can do that. It's definitely becoming more and more popular in the London boroughs rather than up here in Yorkshire in the rural areas, but it would be very useful. Um, we don't actually, I don't actually use it as such. I've not had to use it, but things like Google Earth, that's a great tool because obviously sometimes we've got to prove if a use has occurred within four or 10 years. And by going back over time, you can see if it has done over the last 10 years or four years. So that's a, that's a very useful tool. And I think technology is becoming hugely important when you look at old files from back in the day all paper and all that sort of stuff it's nothing's like that nowadays yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and we all thought that google was benign mm, exactly yeah. yeah but it does say in the uh, rtpi because you're part of the rtpi aren't you as yes. NIP, yeah. um the royal town planning institute they issued a document called probity and the professional planner which yeah. says the quotes rtpi members are to act fearlessly and impartially when exercising their professional judgment. And it's a very strong phrase, that fiercely, isn't it? What's, what's that about? I think where they're going with it is, is that enfor- enforcement in itself or planning in itself is very judgmental. And it's one, like I say, one officer could make one decision, somebody could make a completely opposite. And I think it's just being confident in yourself to back your decision and back your ability to decide a particular development. That's probably where they were going with it. From an from an enforcement perspective, obviously, we have to deal with a lot of difficult people. You wouldn't say that they particularly welcome an enforcement officer coming onto their site. So you have to be you have to be brave to go onto it. Sometimes, yeah, it's best sometimes just to walk away. There's no point causing the aggro to go on the site, and sometimes you just got to come on with somebody else to do it to do a visit. 
so I, I think that's probably where they were going with it in terms of trying to be fearless as, as plumbers. Because I, I was reading the, uh, the guide to enforcement, bedtime browsing, and it says, at site visits, park your car facing the exit. Ensure yeah. you have a mobile phone signal. Constantly gauge the atmosphere on site. It sounded like an SAS manual. Is, uh, is, but but you, uh, I suppose it's mythology for people like yourself. But do you remember the Albert Dryden case in Gateshead? Yes, I do. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 yeah and, that, and that's where it goes from. I, I, when I first started enforcement, I was initially trained by an ex-police officer. So he told me all those little tips, like make sure, like when I go and do the site visit, I don't. I'll maybe drive past it. But then I won't park right onto the site or next to it. I'll park around the corner and just walk on. But then if I do need to run back to my car, it's in a forward direction just for me to quick make a quick escape. It's just little things like that. And it's like when you're driving away, looking in your mirrors and making sure somebody's not following you. And if you do, make sure you drive back to the office. And wow. Yeah. It's a Starsky it, and Hutch of planning, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's To touch wood, it's never happened to myself, but I've known of... Um, certain officers that have had issues like even like dogs for example somebody i know somebody who got who got bitten by a dog and had to have numerous weeks off work it's also it happens to i think there was one particular site i had where um went to go and serve an enforcement notice and we had we'd received reports that this person had a gun or had a license on a gun on the on the site so we thought we'll take the police with us just in just in case police came with us to the site visit and as we, as I went to go and hand the gentleman the enforcement notice, it was literally, he went to go and throw a punch at me. And luckily the police officer stood in the way and pushed him away and we were able to carry on doing what we need to do and get off the site. But that's probably the closest it's ever come to me. But I have known a lot of officers come across to um, various issues on site, shall we yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. yeah, well, just for reference, because it's of my era, the Albert Dryden case is a planning enforcement officer who shot dead. Mm. By, by Albert Dryden in the northeast. Um, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah, it's it's all it's on film because they not only took the police, they took the cameras with them. Uh, yeah. So it's quite a shocking, uh, quite yeah. a shocking scene. On on uh, listed buildings, I mean, these things follow a very similar process, whether it's new build or projected build or or listed <laughs> building. But the Planning Listed Building and Conservation Act, nineteen ninety, section seven says no person shall execute or cause to be executed any works for the demolition of a listed building or for its alteration or extension in any manner which would affect its character as a building of special architectural or historic interest unless the works are authorized. And I was just wondering what that process of authorization for demolition is and whether you're involved in that. We're not necessarily involved in it from an enforcement side of things. It's more when it's not authorized. When it's not authorized. So so there was a case actually down in London where it was a pub, I believe it was. It was a listed pub and they knocked it down because they wanted to create flats. I think it previously been refused by the council, but he just went ahead anyway and knocked it down. The council then served an enforcement notice for him for basically to rebuild the pub brick by brick to how it originally was. And it, he challenged it all the way and he lost it every single way. And he's And now it's been built back to how it originally was, which wow. is which was a very extreme case, but it was a listed building. It was grade two listed and they basically made sure he built it brick by brick when it was. Yeah, so, well, it's, it's that old philosophical discussion as to whether that's the mm. original listed building or whether that's now a new building. 
And whether it was actually the original bricks, I, d- I doubt it would be. I imagine yeah. it would be some other type of brick. But, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, precisely. Well, I mean, in terms of the permissions needed to, to do the demolition works, there you need to get the Royal Commission to come and do a survey to record everything that's there before you actually demolish anyway, don't you? Yeah, you will do, yeah. Uh, yeah. Just moving on to the issue of the Mansi doctrine, which has been spoken of, case law, says apparently that an enforcement notice should not be drafted in such a way as to do away with pre-existing rights, including existing use rights. So I just wanted if you could just talk us through how that applies. Yeah, so every, so you might have come across um, permitted development rights. So every, if we stick to just sort of householder in this instance, so every householder has their permitted development rights to build an extension to a certain criteria without the need of planning permission. So if, for argument's sake, they'd built a an extension to the house and it was 10 metres in, in length, it clearly breaches the permitted development rights, but we shouldn't serve an enforcement notice to remove the whole of the 10 metres because their rights is that they can build up to up to four or six metres. So we should say, well, we should remove at least four metres of that extension to six metres in, in length. So that's not removing their pre-existing rights of what they have. And there's obviously there's various PD regulations for all sorts of development that agricultural have it, electrical code, communicators, there's there's P- PD for Crown Land. There's, it's a massive document. It's when you start as an enforcement officer, that's the first thing you sort of read, and it's mind-boggling. It's the government change it every every two minutes, just like the change prime minister at the moment. But yeah, it's um, they changed a certain section of permitted development under like the coronavirus regs and it was just hidden in there and there's added another paragraph in there just randomly it's really difficult for planners and enforcement officers to come on top of it because it's so complicated they don't make it easy for us in terms of like uses obviously you can change to certain uses um, without the need of planning permission it all depends on what it is and how they want to change it to again the use classes has changed again recently as much yeah. as last year so they've all changed how it'll work so but again when you serve an enforcement notice you're not removing their their rights to change to something else that they're permitted to do then that's then that's then that's what it means by that is there something that you know that the, the developers clients architects always get wrong in this so are there common breaches that they should be looking out for I think probably one of the common breaches that we get is a development's approved for whatever it is, and then a developer goes on site and is starting to build build the scheme out and suddenly decide, oh, actually, I want to put another window here, or I want to increase the roof height here. And generally what happens is that they just do it anyway. They might have spoken to the architect involved and said, oh, yeah, we can do this. We can alter the ridge height, and that should still work with the scheme. I think they then forget that actually those changes still need planning permission to vary the approved plans. There might only be minor changes, but that window potentially could look onto another piece of neighbouring property, which could cause them overlooking impacts and all that sorts of things. So I think that's generally what we see most of is that developers will just try and change things because a client might want something a bit different and they automatically forget that planning because they've already gone through that process. They don't realise they have to go through it again effectively. So I think yeah. that's common mistakes we see. Okay, and that, that's a mistake, but I, I'm assuming that kind of dimensional errors, accidental dimensional errors might also be something which is common. Um, yeah, so there was a recent case, I read about it this morning. It was in, in Barnet, Choice Plate Properties Limited versus Lunt Barnet LBC, where it got permission to knock down 
two semi-detached houses and then to build a block of flats. So the plans were conditioned as per what it should be. But one of the reasons why it got permission was because it wouldn't impact on the two neighbouring properties. And they provided plans to show the dimensions of the neighbouring properties. But what they'd done is that they'd got those properties, their neighbouring properties incorrect. So when they built the block of flats, it actually caused more harm than what was originally shown in the plans. So the council said, well, you can't build your permission because you cause an impact. And it got challenged all the way up to the High Court. And the High Court agreed with the council that they couldn't build it. And they had to then subsequently submit a whole new plan application. So sometimes we do see in schemes where the developer will put forward or the architect will put forward a scheme of what the scheme the site will look like but and then we'll show it, it's in like its street scene and how it'll look in the whole overall street it's important to make sure that you've got the street scheme correct because if you've got that incorrect in terms of dimensions that could have implications later down the line so a good site survey yeah always pays dividends in Definitely. terms of in terms of things like impact because obviously that's decided in terms of the planning permission and the approval in the first place mm. whether it does have impact but you are then commenting subsequently as to whether if there is a fault, if there is a breach, potential mm-hmm. breach, then you're determining whether that impact is you know, it's expedient to prosecute on the on the yeah. basis of whether that impact exists. Yeah, basically. So if there was an if there was an impact and um we would then have to see if how much of an impact it's causing, is it expedient? If we feel that it doesn't going to get planning permission if they submitted it, then subsequently serve an enforcement notice to remove said unauthorized developments so uh final question which is down to you really whether you have any uh words of wisdom any advice for young architects out there entering into this fray what they should be aware of um aware of us enforcement officers that's the first thing i, w- I would just all i would say is obviously build your development if you've designed a scheme and it's acceptable to the local council build it as per the plans if if at any point you want to change it or you feel that there's a change you want to do to the scheme, etc. Speak to the council. Some people have this impression that us, are, as council workers, are in our in our ivory tower. We're not. Just come and approach us, and we're always happy to help and work with other professions to get a suitable scheme that's suitable for everybody. My door's always open. So, um, yeah. so, but would they come to the planning? Would you recommend they go to the planning officer, or is your door open? So, I mean, you know, like if if they're building a building and they're making some amendments. Could they talk to you? Yeah, by all means. I'm always open, or everybody should be open to speaking to to the local council to okay. to to get their advice on whether something's acceptable or not. Whether that's on an informal basis or a formal basis, there's ways to do that before you even submit an application. Submit a pre-application into mm-hmm. the council and get that formal opinion before you've wasted the time in designing a whole scheme and invested a lot of money to develop something it's nothing worse than you've done all that and then suddenly it just gets refused it's best sometimes just to get an idea of what the council's thinking and go okay well this is they've actually mentioned something i didn't even think about let me try and put that into place and that might be more acceptable very good well planning officers are difficult to get hold of but who would have thought their enforcement officer would be approachable Oh yeah, well, well, always um, approachable. Well, what a wonderful revelation that is! What a great <laughs> place to end on. Uh, that, uh, that's it, Craig. That's it. Which uh, time flies. That was very, very interesting. To be honest with you, I've been reading about this for the last week. It's a very difficult topic, but mm. very straightforward explained. Uh, and I think there's a lot more out there. We'll be doing more 
on planning and planning permissions from the front end in, in time. And uh, you can see some more on our archive. So that's all we have time for today. Please tune into the Professional Practice Podcast and listen to our archive on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Austin Williams. Thank you very much. Goodbye.